Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. On today's show, we welcome special guest, Grove Collaborative CEO, Stu Landisberg. Grove Collaborative is a leading sustainable consumer products company. On the podcast, Stu discusses how he made the jump from the buy side to entrepreneurship and how working for Lehman Brothers through the financial crisis of 2008 taught him some important lessons, the opportunity that he sees in environmentally friendly home and personal care products, especially from a competitive perspective, some of the struggles and successes he had while building a new venture from scratch, his favorite productivity hack, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on building a consumer products business with Grove Collaborative CEO, Stu Landisberg. Glad to have Stu from Grove on the show today, calling in from San Francisco. How are things there these days, Stu? Beautiful sunny day. I'm glad to be here. And the office is getting busy. I know you're back in the office today. Uh, Other firms in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, are they mostly back in the office or many still working from home virtually? I think a lot of folks went the way we did, which is we have an awesome team and therefore we trust them. And therefore, being distributed was really, really successful for us. And so it was awesome having lunch with a bunch of teammates uh, in the office today. But we are, we're pretty hybrid these days. And I think that's, that's pretty typical. But nothing like getting together with... Uh, when, you, when you love your, your company and you love your colleagues, it, it's not just productive, but super fun to get together. Yeah, and there's a lot to like about the Grove story. It's, you know, the, the products, it's a feel-good story. And really interesting background for the company and yourself. I first wanted to get into your background because like seemingly many CEOs, leaders, entrepreneurs on the show, I'd say about 25% probably started out with a career in investment banking as you did. Then you went to the buy side, private equity, hedge funds. What was it like being at Lehman Brothers? Uh, And I think you came out of university, joined Lehman in 2007. What was that like? Because that was a fairly crazy time in 2008, the global financial crisis. Yeah, and stock was never higher after I joined. Um, (laughs) Took that place down myself. Uh, But it was a really interesting, informative place to start my career. The the two things I'd say about Lehman were I was shocked by just how good the people were to each other there. And I had a story in my head coming in that business was always serious. And a number of my friends from Lehman are still like my closest friends today. And it was the first place I really got to understand that people are what make businesses work. And that was true when it was going really well. And then the flip side of it is when Lehman went bankrupt, I had thought of businesses as sort of machines that run sort of of their own volition. But it was amazing to watch everything come to a screeching halt as soon as the people stopped making it go. And I've, I've forever sort of taken the business mantra with me of there is no machine. It's just a lot of people making hopefully well-synchronized choices on a daily basis to advance a common goal. 
and how much, you know, we can talk about these businesses, put them in spreadsheets, et cetera. But actually the thing that's going to make Grove or any company successful over a multi-year period is, can you get the right folks in seat? And can you make sure those folks come in every day motivated? And I saw such an extreme example of that at Lehman that I'll never, I'll never be able to unlearn watching this incredible company, this incredible massive organization just fall apart as soon as people stopped believing and then come back together after Barclays basically saved the Lehman Investment Bank. So it was a super interesting place to start my career and um, you know, a, a super formative experience and also you know, sad for a lot of people in a lot of ways. I think a lot of it's definitely left me with an appreciation that you always got a plan for the downside because because the black swan events do happen. Yeah, certainly, it was a spooky time outside an investment bank uh, as a global financial crisis hit. And uh, every day was pretty scary and tremendous volatility. Obviously, you came through it uh, pretty well. You went and made the jump to the buy side and spent some time private equity, hedge funds, and then to entrepreneurship. How did you make that jump from financial services to starting your own venture? There were two things that really led to that. The first was working at TPG and then I left from the partners and, and helped him launch and run a long short hedge fund was hearing entrepreneur stories and getting to really be firsthand understanding what made businesses successful for me it was really hard not to not to love that not to want to go do that and these are people who'd really created what a business is is it's an organization that changes the world in a way that Somebody likes because they're willing to pay for that change in the world. How cool is that, right? And you know, at Grove, I sort of picked the way I wanted to change the world. And now a bunch of people, consumers, pay us to change the world in this awesome way. And so I got to really experience that visceral reality of how business, businesses get started there. So that was the first thing I learned. And the second thing was I had a real specialty at the intersection of consumer retail, consumer products, and consumer internet. And so I got to see the way that our consumer economy just doesn't serve actual people, right? If you think about our category, what's on the shelf in the grocery store, it is driven much more by retailer and distributor priorities often than what people actually wish was on those shelves. And you know, that, that created an opportunity to speak directly to consumers through digital commerce, which I sort of had an understanding from. And it was, you know, it seems obvious today, but back in 2010, 2011, you know, there weren't hundreds of direct consumer brands that had achieved scale. And so the idea that you could build and scale a brand by reaching directly to your consumers was quite novel. So, you know, I left my, my job that made my parents proud back in 2012 with the idea that, you know, I'm going to sell sustainable dish soap and toilet paper on the internet. I think my parents and all of my friends looked at me like I was crazy. But I really got into it because I, I had this passion to start something. And I also, the opportunity, I've always cared deeply around sustainability and the opportunity to fix what was broken in terms of sustainability being so underrepresented in the massive categories across home and personal care. You know, it was, I, would, I felt very called, called to it. And it's been a ton of fun. And it really, for me, is, you know, I love the business side of it. But the reason for being, the reason I was excited to come to work today is the mission. I'm wearing a t-shirt that says sustainability is the only future, right? I like 
I and I think our company culture really believes that we are on one side of a struggle and we have to win. And that's really fun. That's really fun. So long answer to, to the transition, but probably you get the sense for to, the investing stuff is really interesting, but the passion uh, for our mission is, is what makes, I think, this job special. Yeah, trying to improve the environment and creating cool products for customers is probably better than putting together uh, a merger model or a creation dilution model for some M&A. But I digress. Uh, I assume some of the skills that you got from the segments you covered on the buy side, specifically consumer products, consumer internet, supported the thesis behind Grove. Like, What exactly were you looking to accomplish? And you mentioned... Like you, you have this mission. Have you always been, you know, always had the idea to focus on environmentally friendly home and personal care products, or was that an evolution over time? So the core thing we wanted to change, we got right day one, and that's because of sort of the training. And if you look at it from a business opportunity standpoint, and this is the same pitch I gave our Series A investor, and this is the same pitch I gave. Capital Group and Morgan Stanley and all the great folks who've invested in the company over time, which is if you look at our category, it's a massive TAM, trillion dollars globally in home and personal care, 180 billion in the US. About 100% of that is wrapped in single use plastic today. There is no chance that 20 years from now, all of those products are still going to be wrapped in single use plastic, right? It's impossible from a sustainability perspective, just impossible. And that means that all trillion dollars of commerce is going to need to transform. And that's an incredible opportunity. And the advantage we have is that we have better data to innovate. And that core of massive market, highly profitable market, right? Consumer products companies, very profitable, highly profitable, high multiple, massive market set for disruption. It's a great foundation for any business. And then a core advantage in innovation, also a great foundation for any business. Then we just had to figure out how to actually operationalize that thesis. And so that was really the work of the last decade is how do we take that thesis, build it out into a brand that connects with consumers and a sort of business model that can drive scalable, profitable growth to drive big shareholder returns over time. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. So you, you don't really have to be give it too much thought to think of some of the difficulties of competing against some of the the large CPG and, and HPC brands like P&G and Unilever. But can you talk about some of the unique advantages that you actually have in building a pure play sustainable brand versus some of these other brands where it's not really a core part of their philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is always, if you believe that consumers are smart, which I do, there is value in being clear about what you stand for. And I believe that brands tell us something about who we are, right? What brand of shoes or jeans or whatever you wear, that says something about you. So does the brand of dish soap you use, right? So does the laundry detergent that you use to clean your children's clothes. All of these products, they say something about us. And it's really easy for us to be ultra clear in what our objective 
We want consumer products to be a positive force for human and environmental health. This is a category that has a mixed at best track record when it comes to the impact on human health and an atrocious track record on environmental health. We exist to change that. That is so much clearer than a brand that says, well, this one's in plastic. This one has slightly more recycled plastic, which is like kind of greenwashing, <laughs> than this other bottle. Like, And buy this, but also the other one is fine too. And this one is like, we're not doing this because it's a money grab, but also we're not doing it because we believe in it, right? We just want to get more of the market. And that type of, you know, neither here nor there is, that is what creates opportunity. Because the big brands of the past, they stood for values of 50 years ago. They don't stand for the values of today and tomorrow's consumer. Talk to anyone in Gen Z, talk to even you know, 14, 15-year-olds today. They care about climate. They care about plastic in a way that 50 and 60-year-olds just don't. Because the younger generation gets that they're going to have to deal with this. And so we can anticipate that trend and build our whole organization to where the puck is going. And that's a huge advantage. It's the traditional innovator's dilemma, which is like this thing Clay Christensen, a Harvard Business School guy, says about disruption. That paper is where the term disruption came from. And it, it talks about these examples of big companies who are too addicted, whose shareholders are too expectant of the cash flows of legacy business units to disrupt themselves with real innovation. And that's exactly how it is in our business. If you make so much money selling basically water in single-use garbage plastic, how are you going to disrupt yourself with a lower-cost, higher-quality solution? You can't. You're addicted to those cash flows. And so that's the opportunity. Yeah, that's the opportunity. Clearly, I get excited about it. And I think it shows up in our brain. Well, you don't have to look much further than those giant floating islands of garbage in the ocean that is just you know disgusting and disturbing. So it's not surprising to see younger people, millennials, Gen Z transition to say, look, this is what we want. It's just unsustainable, just the amount of garbage that's out there. So clearly, there's a sea change happening in the market. Now, Grove started about a decade ago. Now a public company, over $300 million in revenue. I'm always interested in the in-between, the story from an idea to new venture to a business with public shareholders and quarterly conference calls and analyst coverage and all that. You know, how did that happen? Like, you can start at the start. How was it initially just scrounging up together the resources to get it up off the ground and ultimately raising your first venture capital? Yeah. So, you know, I wrote it all on a spreadsheet and everything went exactly to plan over the last 10 years. It's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just fucking around. Didn't go like that at all. Uh, um, so when we first got started, I knew nothing. I knew a lot about the category. I still think, like I said, our market positioning that we had then have now was correct. I knew nothing about starting a consumer internet business. I knew nothing about starting a consumer products business. And I didn't have any money. So we started in my apartment in San Francisco. I recruited one of my roommates um, to come and join me as a co-founder um, and a third friend from out of town just moonlight with us. And over that first year, we created a prototype, looked like a website, but it was actually in PowerPoint. Like I, I would literally copy and paste. Safari was like the most prominent browser back then. So copy a Safari browser into a PowerPoint presentation. And you were talking about those investment banking analyst skills. I made my PowerPoint <laughs> presentation, like, it's like 200 slides and you click a button and it would link you to another slide. 
So it almost behaved like a website. Nice. And it was totally bananas. I have a copy of it somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but we were able to use that. I couldn't to understand what consumers wanted. We would go to Starbucks. I probably gave away $10,000 in $5 Starbucks gift cards, just asking people, okay, well, you click through my prototype. Like, what would you want? What would you buy? And I got so much data and we, people would be like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'd be like, cool, let me change it. And then I'd ask the next person. And that, those first real two years of guess and check iteration were incredibly painful emotionally. Like, you know, I, my, when my wife first met me, it was during that period. And I distinctly remember her like saying, it's okay, I'm going to be able to like support both of us. You can like do whatever you want you're doing in your career. Like, I got this. Credit to her, uh, believing in me even then. But, uh, but it was incredibly valuable from a learning perspective because we were hand-to-hand with our customers so, so frequently. And it took us you know, a year and a half to get the website up. It took us four years to raise our first venture money. And it was, it was a slog. But we were in direct contact with our customers so often. And this is what I believe so deeply is if you've got the right market and you are right about where the puck is going, the direction of travel, and you've got smart people, you'll figure out the right sort of operational business model. And so that was basically what happened. From 2012 to 2016, the company was very small. We did $6 million in revenue in 2016. We raised our Series A that year. And I did 173 pitch meetings. I got zero yeses. Wow. And I was basically out of options. Oh my God, it's incredibly depressing. I was like, oh, I've been working at this for four years. Like, not only am I going to lose a bunch of my money and time, I've also lost my credibility because two years is like an interesting experiment. Four years is bad judgment. It's very nerve wracking. But I called this guy, Paul Martino from Bullpen Capital. And I said, Paul, I know you were close. There's got to be a place. Paul's response was, you don't want to have that conversation with me, man. Uh, and we had the conversation. He was very fair. And you know, we got that round done. We, I think we did a million in the quarter before he invested. We ended up doing six million that year. We did 32 the next year, 100 the next year. And like you talked about, we'll do you know, comfortably over 300 million this year. So you know, the business really took off from there. But those first four years of understanding the market, understanding who we wanted to be when we grew up, allowed us, as soon as we had access to capital, then it really was... You know, things didn't go according to plan, but we had the right strategy in place. And we'd done four years of being so close to the market, hearing from thousands of customers firsthand that we knew what to do. And that allowed us to scale really quickly as we continue to scale, raise more capital, scale, raise more capital, and ultimately take the company public. So those four years were super foundational for us. And you know, as we grew revenue, we also grew gross margin invested in our first party brand, which are now the largest part of our business, obviously very margin accretive, put out a strong commitment to plastic waste to make clear how our sustainability goals align with our overall success, recently launched into Target, and then announced subsequent retail launches in a couple of different grocery chains, Meyer and Giant Eagle, Kohl's, etc., um, and are continuing to grow the business in an omni-channel way now. So feel, it, it's a story that you know the first chapter was as ugly as it could be, but in many ways, the good chapters could not have been written without it. Certainly a testament to your perseverance and persistence with respect to the mission. Now you went from you know, roughly $6 million to $30 million to $100 million in revenue. After you get that first venture capital funding, 
and you guys really start to ramp. Was there a specific big break that you're like, you know, this is going to work? Or was it just steady day in, day in grind and you look back and you're like, well, now it's working, but this is just a 10-year overnight success? I mean, it's, it's a little bit of the latter, right? Where people talk about Grove now as though it's successful and I'm like, wait a minute, we are. And I will <laughs> yeah. say like, yeah. you know, I was, I was, I think there is, you founder-led companies outperform as stocks in the public markets. And I, oh, over time, it's a statement of fact. And I think the reason is that founder-led companies, like you never lose the, oh my God, we could die tomorrow urgency. Right. Like you never stop. That you, when you've been living, you know, at no point was I ever like, this is good, chill, right? And so we were successful in attracting capital from I think a lot of the smartest firms out there, amazing partners, super lucky for us. But I think one of the reasons that always worked for us is our organization, our culture, and our people have never once said, hey, this is, this is success, right? There's always a hundred things we can be doing better. And so, you know, we doubled our SKU count and target year over year, really excited, right? Added a couple of new categories, added a bunch of SKUs and categories that are doing really well. Talk about it for hours, how good it is. But I'm like, why didn't we triple? Because we could be a tripled assortment, right? Why? And so that mentality I think is what, I think it's a big part of what's gotten us here. And I think it is a big part of what will continue to make us, you know, this is the other advantage is, you know, nobody at Grove plays not to lose. You don't pay the biggest salaries in the industry, you pay market, but everybody's got equity upside. And we're all here culturally because we're playing to win. We're not playing to grow our market cap by 5% a year, 10% a year, just beat the S&P by a little. That's not what we're here to do, right? We're here to drive transformational change. And I think that mentality is powerful. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX, is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy-to-use, one-choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One-Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1CONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. That's a really good point with respect to founder-led companies. And I have seen that data, and it seems like those that aren't led by the founders can just be mercenaries that don't have the same, you know, that's my baby mentality, do whatever it takes. And you have the attitude of you just can't rest on your laurels and you got to be in the battle every single day. Now, touching on Grove's products, and I'm curious, how do you create a consumer products company with zero waste and zero plastic? I mean, you look at uh, anyone's home, like they definitely have uh, quite a few bags of garbage each and every month. So I look out at this, and, and I, there's something amazing happening in the market right now. Because the biggest societal problems are creating the biggest financial opportunities. So you know, how do you create an energy economy totally unreliant on the sort of fossil fuel, carbon-based energy that we've had for the last hundred years? How do you do that? How do you create a meat economy that doesn't rely on industrial animal agriculture? 
right? Both of those things seem as challenging, but they're existential threats to humanity. So we better figure them out. The same is true of plastic, right? Our industry alone is a trillion dollars in plastic. Plastic, for those who don't know, is a derivative of petroleum. So you use petroleum to make the product. Oil companies are actually projecting that they'll be able to offset a decline in fuel consumption by increasing the production of plastic so they can keep pumping as much carbon into the air. Incredible. Um, hopefully that is not what comes to pass because I think consumers are getting smart with plastic. But it's sort of the third leg of the stool, right? Microplastics are everywhere from you know, in unborn babies' blood to virgin snow in the Antarctic. And I believe we have to solve the plastic problem. And that's an incredible market opportunity. 84% of the US believes we need to take action on single-use plastic. And visualize your kitchen under your sink. Think about what's in your laundry room. Right? Think about what, wherever you're thinking about. There's plastic. Single-use garbage everywhere. And plastic recycling is a total myth. It was created by the chemical companies in the 80s to make sure that plastic didn't go out of style the way styrofoam went out of style because everyone knew, felt guilty for using it. Plastic recycling is a myth. Less than 9% of the plastic that you put in the recycling bin gets recycled. So we have to solve this problem. And so putting ourselves out there, if I knew exactly how to be plastic-free, we'd already be there. But what I'm certain about is by creating an ultra-clear North Star for our exceptional team, for our partners, the great brands we work with, for our retailers, our customers. So everybody knows exactly who, where we're going. That improves our odds and accelerates the process of getting to where we need to go. And so there's no like, snap your fingers, this is the solution, you know, we got it, we're done. But really, I think what it is, is if we're ultra clear about the destination, we improve the odds of getting there. And I think since we set our zero plastic 2025 goal, you know, we've gotten well over 100 million in zero plastic sales. We've built our brand, our brand as the clear market leader in zero plastic, right? And if you believe that this change is inevitable, which I think it's not hard to convince people that single-use plastic is going to go the way of styrofoam and cars without seatbelts, right? Like, why does anybody do that? Our brand is cemented in sort of the, at the front of that pack. And we got there by being early on the issue and really investing in it. And so that's differentiated R&D. It's a differentiated understanding of how you bring concentrated formats to market, how you use materials like glass and paper and aluminum, all three of which are infinitely recyclable in place of single-use plastic. It's about how you transform formats like liquid laundry into laundry sheets, which are sort of like uh, dissolvable dryer sheets, if you will. You put them in, they just dissolve. There's no waste at all. Um, how you source bath tissue, for example, from bamboo and still have it feel good enough that people will actually buy it, right? These are really different supply chains, real expertise. But we've had a decade to work on, a decade to work on it before anybody wanted to talk about it. And now people are starting to talk about it. And we're like, oh, cool. We've been doing this for a decade, <laughs> right? We've, we've got something that you might be looking for. And I think, I think we're, you know, you refer to us as a 10-year overnight success. I feel like we're first pitch, first inning, right? If we're not, if, if we don't make more progress over the next 10 years than the last, you know, that, I haven't done a good job because the opportunity is there. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in price points between your brands and some of the legacy products? And, you know, it, like, is, is it more difficult to market your products in a high inflation environment? Th things like that. So 
I think one of the great disservices of natural products in general is that they were traditionally distributed through the specialty channel and traditionally came at a higher price and candidly didn't have great efficacy. And so one of the biggest challenges for us is making clear that we are a brand that prioritizes efficacy. You didn't ask about it, but it goes in the same bucket, right? As price, I think, which is making sure that our products genuinely work better than the competition, conventional or natural. So making sure our claims are good and that if you buy our laundry detergent, the tomato sauce is coming out of your kid's shirt, right? Not even my own wife would use our products if I didn't get the tomato sauce out of my three-year-old's shirt. And from a price perspective, our products don't cost more than the high-quality branded conventionals. Sure, they they cost more. You know, if you're tied, for example, they've probably got a value line and a mid-tier line and a premium line and an ultra premium. And you know, we're probably in the top half of of tied's assortment from a price point perspective, but it's not significantly high. And I think that's becoming extra important right now. You know, we raised our guidance after our last quarter, for example, because when a lot of consumer companies were going the other way, and I think that's part of that is a testament to our ongoing efforts to really make sure that we're delivering value. To our consumer. And when you look at our packaging, look at the messages we deliver, I'm talking a lot about sustainability because I care a lot. About it. I think that's the long-term trend. But when we go to market, we build a deliberately big tent. We don't talk about climate change on our packaging because I know that's a divisive issue, but plastic is not a divisive issue. So we lean into plastic, which is a big differentiator. And some people may not agree that climate change is man-made. It's fine. I'm not going to be able to convince them on shelf. But nobody can disagree that plastic waste exists, right? That exists. Everybody can see it. And so for us, being at a really competitive, attractive price, right? We like to say we're, we're not in the top 25% of the market. We're sort of like in that middle 25 to 75 band, right? That middle 50% of the market from a pricing perspective. And then also having highly efficacious formulas, differentiated packaging that speaks to a common sense sustainability message, right? Not a polarizing one. And that can over-deliver from a customer-centricity perspective. None of this is about sacrifice. We haven't talked about how good the products smell. We haven't talked about, we do seasonals. Our spiced pumpkin hand soap is on fire right now. For all your listeners, just download the Grove app, buy our spiced pumpkin hand soap before it runs out. <laughs> I think there's still some in Target, but it's selling really well there too, right? Like building products that customers love so that you're kind of like the best brands, even if they're mission-oriented, are products that consumers love to use because of what they are, right? People drink Oatly because the product is good. People buy Patagonia jackets because the product is good, not just because of the sustainability impact. And the same is true for growth, right? People come back and buy year after year, not just because of what we do, but also because we make a great product. Now I'll have to check out that spice pumpkin hand soap, it sounds like. Uh, I'm intrigued. <laughs> that being said... <laughs> I wanted to wrap things up here, and one last fun question, uh, just from a uh, you know, like asking other CEOs, entrepreneurs, leaders, what time do you wake up, and what is one of your favorite productivity hacks? So I wake up extremely early um, because I like to exercise. I have two children. I love being involved in their lives. I have very few hobbies um, aside from sort of working, exercising, seeing a small group of friends, and riding my bike. And my family. So I try to be back by like 6.30 or 7 to help with the kids. So I wake up very early so I can either exercise or work. Call it 5 to 5.30. Um, sometimes 4 to 5.30. Um, so I wait, I'm an early one, which I think is, I totally recommend. I think the mornings are both the most beautiful and still and productive times in humanity. 
from a productivity hack perspective, for me, this is going to sound really silly. I make a playlist of really good music. And I've done this actually since I was like making spreadsheets at Lehman Brothers. <laughs> and I will like save that music for when I need to get my most important work done. And then if I have to sort of like jam through a really important piece of work product, internal or external, I will put on that playlist that I've been saving. And I just get a burst of energy. And this tells you probably about like how much I love my job. And I just like, I feel like I'm like connected to the content that I'm creating. And it's, I'm smiling as I say it because it's, it's, it's so much fun to get in that, get in that flow state. So that is, that's probably my favorite productivity app. I can only imagine you, Stu, getting ready for a quarterly conference call, loading up your uh, Master of Puppets playlist. <laughs> oh, 100% my team and I listened to Pump Up music before, like, uh, before everything. Eye of the, we played Eye of the Tiger before every single investor meeting through the like, uh, go public process. Awesome. Absolutely. Not, not the whole thing, just a bar or two. Yeah. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I love to hear it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, telling us about the Grove story and your background and really just giving us insights and, and details into your career, uh, how Grove started, early struggles, and some success, but you're still working at it every single day and on, definitely on the right trajectory there. So wishing you the best of luck. Excited to see how it turns oh, out. Thank you much for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to checking back in uh, as we work through the next couple chapters. Awesome. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.